Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. Uh, The reading will be taken from the book of Acts chapter 10, reading from 34 to 54, 43, sorry. I'm good. (laughs) Okay. Then Peter began to speak. And now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accept from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. And then we're reading in John chapter 20, verse 1 to 18, the empty tomb. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped round Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, "'Women, why are you crying?' "'They have taken my Lord away,' she said." and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. 
He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vera. Thank you, Stephen. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is risen Hallelujah. I've been thinking this week a lot about faces. I was looking at some old photographs of uh, faces of our children earlier this week and uh, remembering how cute and wonderful they were and how awful they are. No, not how awful they are. They're lovely. I love my children. Um, and a line all week has been sort of going around my head. It's, it's the title of the final novel of the author C.S. Lewis. And his final book, published in 1956, is called Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces. I don't know if anybody has read the novel. I haven't read it, but it's a, it's a title that has been haunting me through the week. And it's a retelling of an old ancient Greek myth um, and in the telling, one of the characters says to another, how will we talk face to face with the gods until we have faces? It's a, it's a query and an exploration of whether it's possible to know God, to talk to God face to face if we ourselves don't have a face or feel disfigured or feel faceless. And it's this idea of faces, it's this line, till we have faces, that has been preying on my mind all week. And it's what I want to explore with you briefly this morning. It's about what it means to come face to face with the risen Christ. Amen. Father God, I want to pray that your spirit would open these words not just to our minds and our ears, but to our hearts today. I want to pray that these words uh, in Scripture, these words that I have prepared, will move us and change us and renew our hope. I want to pray that your words, uh, your word in Scripture would speak to us now and that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking, moving our hearts, renewing our hope and sending us out from here full of determination to walk the way of the risen Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the second part of that reading in John chapter 20 that uh, Stephen just read for us, Mary is at the empty tomb weeping and crying, and she hears a voice from behind her, and she responds without turning around. She just hears a voice vaguely, but she doesn't know the source, the origin of that voice, because she is facing the other way. And then the scriptures tell us Mary turned around. All of Christian life begins with turning around, hearing a voice, perhaps even faintly, and 
turning around. Moses saw something off in the side of his vision and he turned and went to draw nearer. Jesus spoke to Mary. Mary was in the garden. In fact, we have a depiction here as well, if you want to have a look at it later, of uh, the empty tomb in the garden. This is, uh, Rachel had a service here yesterday, the unknown service, and uh, at that point the stone was rolled over the face of the tomb. Today it's rolled away and the tomb slash tent is empty. Um, Do go and have a look at that later on. But all of Christian life starts when we think we hear a voice and we turn around to see and to hear more clearly. Martin Luther, famous for uh, being one of the sort of instigators of what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Remember, he began it on October the 31st, 1517, by nailing 95 theses, uh, 95 claims, arguments, to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. And the very first one said this. It said, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of a believer be one of continual repentance. That sounds a bit gloomy, doesn't it? Come on, Graham, it's Easter Sunday. Give us something joyful. Why are you telling us we've got to repent all the time? But what's repentance? Repentance is turning around. Repentance is hearing a voice behind us calling our name and turning around. Repentance is that moment where our despair and our sorrow is overwhelming us, the anxiety and the stress and the pandemic and the war, and we could feel just beaten down and pressed down and oppressed by all of this, and then we hear the echo of a voice, we we see a glimmer of light from over our shoulder and we turn around. When we turn around on Easter Sunday, we meet a familiar stranger, a familiar stranger. Isn't that true? Whenever we meet the risen Christ, we meet a familiar stranger, one that we sort of recognize and sort of don't, one who sort of looks the way he always did and the way we expected and one who sort of looks different, changed, transformed. So what does Jesus look like and how will we recognize him when we turn around? When we turn around, how will we know that we're not just turning around to some other voice, the voice of our ego, the voice of our society, the voice of culture around us? What does Jesus look like? How will we recognize him? There's an old story told of a small girl drawing a picture, and her mother asks her what she is drawing, to which she replies, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the mother chuckles and then replies, well, of course, no one really knows what God looks like. The girl responds, when I finish my picture, they will. <laughs> the Bible describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. In fact, the Greek word for image there is icon, a little bit like an icon on your computer of a folder or an app or an icon of an app on your phone. When you press it, it leads you into that thing which it represents. Jesus is an icon of the invisible God. When you see him, you see a whole world beyond him. And if we want to know what God looks like, we look to Jesus. And if we want to know what Jesus looks like, we read the descriptions and the depictions of him in the Gospels and the wider Scriptures. We don't need to get hung up on the details of his appearance. We can safely assume that he was olive-skinned, brown-eyed, dark-haired, probably a fair bit shorter than I am, but we don't really know very much more. Isaiah says that he had nothing in him that we should behold him. So he probably didn't have Robert Powell slash David Beckham slash Tom Holland 
good looks, you choose your pinup of choice. But the Bible also suggests that if we want to know what Jesus looks like, we could do well to also look at one another. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul describes Adam. He's talking about Adam as the primal human, the first man. And he says Adam was a type of the one that was to come. A type of the one that was to come. The Greek word typos there simply means a copy or an imprint. A little bit like a typewriter that makes a mark or an imprint on the page. Think prototype or archetype, the first thing, not the copy. There's something original, and then there's the copy which bears a true likeness. Well, if Adam is a copy, or if he bears the imprint of one that was to come, then that's another way uh, of St. Paul saying that the human creation, when we say we're made in God's image, human creation, what we really mean to say is that we're made in the image of Jesus Christ. Before God willed to come in the flesh at Christmas, at the Incarnation, before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, from all eternity, God had willed to come in human form, to create us in the image of that which one day he would assume. I wasn't going to give you this little theological phrase, but I'm going to give it to you and just mull on it. The incarnation of God in Christ is chronologically after creation, but theologically prior to creation. Let me say that again. The incarnation of God in Christ is chronologically after creation, but theologically prior to creation. Go mull that over a little and think about what it means for the human image, what it means to say that we are created in God's image and what it means for Jesus' eternal plan to come and live and walk among us. That's why Christians believe that every woman, man and child in some way bears the image of God. Distorted and marred by sin, yes. Refracted into glorious diversity by culture and biology, yes but nonetheless somehow revealing Jesus to one another. So if you want to know what Jesus looks like, we have to learn to look carefully at one another. It's this conviction that leads us to assert the inherent dignity of every human person. It's this conviction that gives us peculiar ethical positions on life and death, abortion and euthanasia. It's this conviction that leads us to nonviolence. It's this conviction that leads us to honor one another in our relationships, not simply to use one another for our own enjoyment. And yes, this, of course, gives rise to peculiar and distinctive sexual ethics as well. So what does Jesus look like? What does God look like? How will we encounter this familiar stranger today? Well, looks like Alicia there. Looks like Arvin. Looks like Robbie, Maria. These are people who are going to be baptized in just a few minutes or renew their baptismal vows in just a few minutes. He looks like each of you. He looks like me. He looks like us. And beyond the faces of those we know, we can also perceive Jesus in the face of strangers. And that causes us to see afresh, to gaze differently upon all the people that we encounter. 
that our faces, as well as revealing Jesus to one another, can also be the cause of grief, pain, and shame as well. I've recently watched some TV shows and films in which characters had disfigured faces. I watched the film Death on the Nile earlier this week, and in it, a First World War soldier has his face badly damaged by an explosion. And although it heals, he grows facial hair to hide the scars. In the drama Boardwalk Empire, another First World War veteran is severely disfigured and wears a mask to hide half his face. Both believe themselves unlovable if, as it were, their facial hair, their mask were taken off. Another character in Boardwalk Empire cannot live with her disfigurement at the hands of another and is driven to suicide. The scars of the wounds that we bear may not be physical on our faces, but they're often worn emotionally on our faces. Like Adam and Eve in their shame, we hide our faces from God, refusing to believe that he could bear to look on us. But the Bible talks about intimacy with God in terms of face-to-face relationships, Moses in Exodus 33 is described as talking with God face to face. In the Old Testament, though, this is a rare thing. Most cannot see the face of God and live. Yet in Jesus, God has taken upon himself a face upon which we can bear to gaze. It's a face which was disfigured by the violence of Good Friday. Yes, Jesus was beaten and bruised. He hung on the cross, his face bloodied and swollen. Isaiah 52, 14 says his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human, his form marred beyond human likeness. Yet just a few days later, Jesus talks with Mary face to face. And he doesn't hide his scars from the disciples. We know this when he appears to them. He shows them the marks of his wounds. He's not ashamed. He invites us to look on him and to be looked on by him. And the very last chapter of the Bible, in a vision of the new creation, a vision of how things one day will be for us, Revelation 22 foretells a time when we ourselves will look upon the very face of Jesus. Now, I'm aware that we live in an age of digital communication and Zoom calls and FaceTime and Facebook do in some ways give us tools to encounter one another from a distance. They're an approximation, but they have profound limitations as well. They're only a shadow of the true glory of face-to-face encounters. When a child is born, it's cradled in its parents' arms and it stares at the face of its mother or father. It's creating an extraordinary bond face-to-face. When lovers wed and consummate their marriage, they behold and delight in the face of the beloved. When loved ones grow old and prepare for death, we sit at their bedside and we stare at their faces, tracing in the lines the memories of our relationships. Just this week, a group of us gathered here to discuss the complex and sometimes divisive issues of identity, relationships, sexuality, and marriage. And we could have lobbed tweets at one another in virtual spaces, but by meeting face to face, we could listen to one another, love one another meaningfully. Jesus transforms our disfigured faces to delightful faces, delightful to him, delightful to us, delightful to one another. And he does this by resurrecting our imagination, helping us to see things differently. 
Imagination is all about how we see and perceive things. It's to do with the images that enter our minds, not just the prisms and the refractions of light that hit our retina, but about the work of the optic nerve and the brain in rearranging these via the imagination into some kind of meaningful vision. Too often, we see too dull, without clarity, without focus, without true perspective. When Mary encounters Jesus, she's initially mistaken in her imagination. She thinks him to be the gardener. Perhaps she's not looking properly. Perhaps she's distracted by the tears or her grief which cloud her vision. And perhaps too often we focus so much on our own pain that we cannot see Jesus standing beyond. But when Jesus calls her by name, addresses her by name, she perceives him clearly. She sees him for who he is. Peter, too, has a resurrected imagination. In Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius' house, he says, I now realize, or in another translation, I now see that God does not show favoritism. His whole worldview is changed by the risen Christ. Our whole world is changed by the risen Christ. It's now possible to view the world and one another differently, with hope rather than despair, with joy rather than sorrow, with love rather than fear. We once were disfigured, but now we're made whole. We're trading our sorrows, our sickness, our pain for the joy of the Lord. We're made whole, but our scars, like Jesus' scars, are a reminder of the sin of the world, but also how the sin of the world is forgiven and the wounds of the world are healed and overcome. So you are an icon of the risen Christ. How will we know this familiar stranger that calls us on Easter Sunday? We look at one another and we trust that we ourselves, one another, will be to one another icons of the risen Christ. You and your scars. You were made to reveal his goodness to the world, to love as he loves, to look on others as he looks on others. St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We see differently. We are in Henri Nouwen's evocative phrase, wounded healers. Mary's tears and grief cannot ultimately cloud her vision. She sees the Lord despite her brokenness and her scars. She becomes the first witness to the resurrection, proclaiming this new hope to the disciples. Peter, despite his denials of Jesus, sees afresh what God is doing and shares it with others. We're called to be like Mary and Peter, to encounter the risen Christ, to see him afresh, to see the world afresh, and to share with others what he is doing. I want to conclude by reading to you uh, some paragraphs from um, this book, King's Cross by Tim Keller which is a, a vision really of what will one day be, uh, the purpose of our lives, looking forwards to that day of the Lord. Here's what Tim Keller says. The disciples thought that Jesus was going to win. And when they saw the nails going into the hands and the feet and the spear going into the side, they believed those wounds had destroyed their lives. But now Jesus is showing them that in his resurrected body, his scars are still there. 
Why is this important? Because now that they understand the scars, the sight and memory of them will increase the glory and joy of the rest of their lives. Seeing Jesus Christ with his scars reminds them of what he did for them, that the scars they thought had ruined their lives actually saved their lives. Remembering those scars will help many of them endure their own crucifixions. On the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everything right, the day that everything sad comes untrue, on that day the same thing will happen to your own hurts and sadness. You will find that the worst things that have ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. On that day, all of it will be turned inside out and you will know joy beyond the walls of the world. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar that you bear. So live in the light of the resurrection and renewal of this world and of yourself in a glorious, never-ending, joyful dance of grace. This Easter, though you are imperfect, damaged, broken and scarred, nonetheless, you are invited to turn with Mary and face the risen Jesus. You will find that your disfigured face has become delightful. And when you come face to face with him, you will become radiant in his love and power. Let's pray. Father, though we remember daily and weekly the resurrection of Jesus in our prayers, in our worship and our holy communion, we mark and we celebrate annually at this feast of Easter. But for all the familiarity, we pray that this year would be different, that this year would be a hinge, this year would be a springboard into something new. That especially after two years of not being able to meet in freedom, two years of darkness, we pray that this year we would encounter Jesus afresh. That our disfigured faces bearing the scars of stress and anxiety and hurts and wounds and broken relationships and pain and loss would become delightful in your presence would bear your image, the image of your son Jesus, to the world. May we be the people who reflect and represent Jesus to the world. And especially as we baptize today, as we renew our baptismal faith, we offer ourselves once again to be image bearers in your kingdom. For the sake of Jesus, our precious Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.